Yo, yo, what up, what up? Welcome to the WTF Should I Do With My Life podcast. I am your host, Jacob Sokol, and I am stoked about today's podcast. As you may or may not know, one of my deepest passions is helping to connect people more deeply with themselves, meaning the wisdom that is in their hearts or that is looking to be expressed through them. If you're already starting to say, what the hell is he talking about, then today's conversation may be one that's life-changing for you. Um, The conversation is with John Wineland, who is a men's embodiment coach, and he supports men in listening to and tapping into a deeper source of wisdom within themselves, uh, amongst many other types of work that he does. But that was today's conversation, and... It's just exciting. You know, we live in an age of information overwhelm where we're staring at screens or we're strategizing about what our life plan is. And the conversation that we talk about today helps us figure out how we can not just live from our head, but live from the whole of ourselves, meaning our heart, meaning our gut, meaning maybe our balls or our womb or whatever's down there in genitalia land, right? How do we bring our whole self into life and into the conversation? If you've ever felt like you were looking for that next thing and you didn't know what that was as much as you've looked and as far as you've searched, it might be because you're searching in the wrong place. And more of that is only going to give you more of what you currently have. So today in this conversation, we talk about what is embodiment work and what's the upside of doing it. Um, I asked John, how can we trust ourselves more? What practices can we put in place in order to know that we're okay and we're safe? Um, We talk about what is the importance of death and paying attention to death, right? And we talk about why is it that you'd want to slow down, which might be the last fucking thing that you're interested in doing, slowing down, but Why is it that you might want to slow down and what could you get from that? And what's the distinction between the type of slowing down that actually helps you versus hurts you? I am stoked, uh, as you can probably tell by my voice. Let's jump into today's conversation with John Wineland and uh, enjoy. Here we go. John, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, It's my pleasure, Jacob. It's good to talk to you, man. Dude, I can't tell you how fucking stoked I am that we get to have this conversation. Like, I'm genuinely bubbling with excitement right now. And yeah, this is a conversation I'm, I'm really looking forward to having both for myself because it's so relevant to my own life and to help introduce you and the essence of what you do to my community and to the world at large. And uh, yeah, just thanks again for being here, man. Right on, man. Thank you for thank you for your enthusiasm. It makes me smile. Yeah, right on. So I'm going to ask you a question that I'd probably hate to get asked myself, which is, what's the core of the work that you do? the The title that I have for it is embodied men's work, but maybe you can kind of unpack that a bit for all of us who are listening. Mm. Sure. Yeah, you're right. I, I, <laughs> it's it's such a niche, man. I never know how to explain what the hell I do. You know, it's one of those things where yeah. if I went back to like a high school reunion, I I don't know what I'd say. Um, but but it, the best way I can I can encapsulate it is, you know, I, I try to make men and women because I work with women too. But but my my real my real passion is men's work. Um, you know, my mission is to make men more available by getting them into their bodies, opening their hearts and connecting them to the divine, whatever, whatever they consider the divine to be. So unlike a lot of modalities, which are strategic in nature, you know, my, my training and my passion is, is really, um, how to, how to embody, um, you know, masculine archetypes, masculine essences, masculine energies, uh, and feminine too. Uh, a lot of the men's work that I end up doing now, you know, gets men in touch with their feminine, but this all happens through the body. So, you know, it's not something that we, we can think about it or talk about it, but, you know, experiencing something through the body has a whole different, um, energetic range 
and just much more depth and impact, I think, not only for the person practicing. And, you know, you've done some of the weird stuff that I do. So um, uh, not only for the person practicing, but for the people experiencing them. Mm. Yeah. And when I look around at my generation, people as a whole, and speaking from my own experience, one of the traps that I think we fall into is trying to solve life in our head, trying to come up with the certainty or the control or the plan and on a head-based level um, to live from that place. And so what I get from your work is that there's a dropping down and an integrating of not just the head, but of the whole self, the heart, the gut, the, the self as a whole. And from that place to move forward and to be able to have access to a range of wisdom that it just it doesn't come from the head. There's a deeper wisdom. Um, does that sound safe to say that, that that's part of what you're doing? Yeah, no, that sounds very much like what I'm doing Um you know, the the first step in, let's call it embodiment practice, for lack of a better, you know, term, is to drop in, right? And most of that happens just by breath practice. So slowing down your breath, deepening your breath, you know, it, and anybody who does that in any moment becomes more embodied. I think that's just kind of common sense that most people know, but don't actually practice. And when... um you know, we've proven now that, you know, the it's not so much the body and the mind, but it's at the body-mind, right? That there, there's a connection, an intimate connection with our physiology and our brain function. Um, so the thoughts we think, um, the ways we, the emotions we feel, the ways of being in the world, they're all deeply impacted by our physiology and nothing, you know, creates... A, a dropping in physiologically more than breath. So when we breathe, I think you hit the nail on the head, we, um, we become much more, well, not only does our, just our brain chemistry change, uh, which would change the way that we would address a problem, right? But we do start to tap into these deeper centers, um, what in, in Qigong they call, you know, the the Dianten, which is that wisdom center, the seed of masculine creativity that's just below the navel. Well, if we're not breathing into our bellies, we're not giving that any energy. You know, for the women, for for women, it's the womb. It's the energy of the womb. Well, the masculine equivalent of that is, you know, this this space between our navel and our genitals where the seed of masculine power exists. So if we're not bringing our awareness, bringing our our focus and finding ways to create power and openness from that space, um, as well as the heart, right? As well as the heart, um, we're, we're losing so much energy. We're missing the opportunity to have energy and wisdom and capacity and stamina, uh, all of these things that, you know, martial artists throughout the thousands and yogis, you know, throughout thousands and thousands of years have known. Mm. So I'd really love to uh, polarize the distinction between information and embodiment. If you were to gonna, if you were going to explain embodiment to a five year old, how would you do that? It's mm. <laughs> cool. I've never had to do that. Um, I would start by having them. So I have to back up just a tiny bit to talk about information, um, I think what I would say is there are things, I'll start with the adult and then I'll track it down into a child. So as adults, we learn to move from the impulse of our, of our um, minds, right? Which is, so we have an idea and we tend to move from, I don't want to call it neurosis, but, but just this idea of doing something, getting something, being something, um, creating something. And the energetic of moving from, of creating movement from thought has a different resonance than creating movement from feeling. And so feeling doesn't happen in the brain. Processing of information does. Feeling happens through the body. So the way I would describe it to a five-year-old is I would say, move how you feel. 
if you're feeling sad, let me see sadness through your body. And if you're feeling, if you're feeling happy, how does your body, let me feel happiness through your body. So the thing is, is that most five-year-olds already got this down. Like that's what they're doing. That's what they're doing, right? You know, they're, they're already, they're still there. They haven't been, you know, they haven't gone through the ringer that most of us go through. And so most of them know this extremely well. They still breathe into their bellies. They still, if they have a feeling, their body, you know, expresses it more fully. And so in all honesty, Jacob, I would just say, you know, show me how you feel. Mm. And they would probably be able to drop into it so much easier than, you know, than most adults that I know. And so what's the upside of this? Because in our culture, it seems like we've been taught to not uh, show how we feel and that there's a perceived danger or an inappropriateness about allowing ourselves to experience what we're experiencing, whether there's shame there or just Mm. social norms about what's acceptable and what's not. So I could see why there's a lot um, stacked against us doing this, but what would be the upside of of us doing this? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I've actually never thought about it in in those terms. But the first thing that comes to mind to me is we're just felt differently. So if we're, if we're, I mean, we all have the experience of, you know, feeling people who are in their heads, like, for example, you know, looking at iPhone, looking at my iPhone, for example, locked into whatever, Facebook or Instagram, you know, I'm actually felt as I'm felt as a man who's in his head. And so people are going to feel me in a very small way. Well, if I'm in my body, meaning I'm feeling my breath, I'm feeling my heart, I'm feeling my belly, I'm feeling my legs, like I'm actually feeling in my body, I'm felt um, as a man who has a body. And even more so if I'm feeling if I'm feeling out, like if I'm a good part of embodiment practices, meditating and feeling out into a space, then I'm felt even wider. And we all have an experience of feeling people larger than they are or smaller than they are. And so the, the first thing that I would say is that we're just felt in a much more enjoyable, much more attractive, I guess, much more trustable way. And, um, and so it has an immediate impact on our relationships, you know, on our sexuality, on just how intimate we can be, because again, intimacy is experienced through the body, not through the mind. Um, and so it has immediate, uh, immediate impact in our romantic relationships. And then for men, especially how much we're trusted by other men, right? Um, how much we're, you know, my guess is that if you were giving your, you know, million dollars for somebody to manage, you would want to feel that man as a man that you would follow, right? You'd follow his lead. And his capacity to do that, um, in my opinion, is greatly enhanced by his ability to rest in his body. And, you know, there are a myriad of other, um, of other benefits, um, health, uh, mental health, sexual health, um, uh, just the, uh, they've proven now that, you know, people who breathe and s- slow their breathing down and uh, breathe in a certain way um, are just, uh, their, their levels of stress are much less, um, mm-hmm. their brain function is much different, their heart function is much different. And I think if I was going to add one last piece to this, it would be that when we're embodied, whether it's expressing emotion or, you know, whether it's dropped into some kind of, let's call it emotional authenticity, or um, we're just being, um, the impact that we have on our environment is totally different. Like we're we're impacting our environment. I, I would use the word openness. You know, my teacher uses this concept of openness a lot. And that in feeling open, you're, he doesn't use this term, but I like to use it. It's like you're blessing the space that you're in. Your, your, your openness, whether it's with sadness or grief or fear or the, the lack of collapse in your body and in your mind, 
actually impacts people in a way that makes them more open and more dropped in. So the ripple effect of our embodiment um, impacts all of our relationships, all of the spaces that we interact with, all the people we interact with. And, you know, who knows what the, you know, what the ultimate ripple effect is. Yeah, it's cool because there's this irony here, which is that as men, we've been socialized to believe that we should not express our emotions because that makes us non-trustworthy, mm. right? If we're emotional. But yeah. on the other side here, it's wait, when I can actually be honest about where I am and what I'm experiencing, there's a groundedness and a presence to that that creates trust that makes people feel like whoa he's really here yeah Yeah, well let's make the distinction i think it's an important distinction to make and this is a big piece of you know the men's work that i do is um owning your emotion right feeling your emotion versus projecting your emotion right so there's a whole different texture to um i think we had to talk about jealousy at one point right there's a whole different texture to um I'm just, you know, God, I'm so jealous or I'm feeling like a lot of energy in my body and I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm sad and I'm angry and I'm, I'm just feeling a lot of sensation and I'm really jealous. Like I'm so jealous of that, that guy. Right. Um, uh, the experience of just expressing that and let's call it narrating it and owning it, um, with, without collapse, right. Without like our body tightening and our breath shortening and our you know, eyebrows furling and our jaw tightening, um, owning it in a way that's open and honest has a whole different texture than projecting it, which is where most people tend to go, men and women, right? Like you have an emotion and then all of a sudden it, it ends up being launched at people. And that's what, you know, creates, you know, emotional abuse and disconnection and all kinds of, of issues, no matter what the relationship is. And so a, a key skill, I think, for the modern man is learning how to, A, get into his body enough to know what he's feeling, and then B, um, learning how to communicate from, from a place that's honest, but not blaming or projecting. Mm. So that would sound like, I'm experiencing jealousy and here's where, here's what I'm feeling. You know, this happened, I interpreted it this way and and I'm feeling this versus, you know, how could you do that? You messed up. You're such a bitch. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what are you doing? Talking to that guy and what's that? I mean, it's the same emotion at the core, right? I'm feeling jealous. (laughs) What I do with that, I could either attack, right? Um, uh, point these emotions at my partner. We'll just use the romantic partner as an example. Um, or I can just, I can just start to narrate like, wow, when you talk to that guy, the minute we get into interpretation, it starts to get a little tricky. I could say, wow, you know, you were, you were talking to that guy and I just, I felt, I felt a wave of jealousy come through me. And I had the thought of, 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 um, God, I want to, I want to run over there and push him away from you. And then I had the, and then I was making up that you were attracted to him. Now I've just, I've just expressed the whole cadre of thoughts and feelings with none of them, uh, placing a projection onto her about what she's thinking or feeling or doing. Mm-hmm. And, and so what that does is it gives her space to then react to my, um, to what's authentically happening in me um, versus when I project something onto her, she has no space for her own experience uh, in relation to me. Um, and, and this is, look, man, this is a lifelong, you know, practice. Yeah. <laughs> this some... is, I, I'm talking about complicated shit here and trying to boil <laughs> it down into one conversation <laughs> and you're dealing with the human heart, you know, but, but, you know, we've got to start somewhere. And so that's why I always say, you know, with breath, breath is the first step because then I can actually feel what's happening. It's, it's like breath gives you the space in between stimulus and response. So yeah. thing yeah. happens and instead of that automatic impulse that you were talking about in the beginning, it's like, hold on a second, 
let me distance and just create the space between the event and the story that I create about it and the response or the reaction that I have. And breath is kind of the way to do all of that. It's, it's, you know, you, you don't want to give uh, like the magic pill, but yes. Um, I mean, yogis have known this and wise men and women, saints and sages and practitioners and Tibetan monks. And, you know, this is thousands of years of technology and, you know, so breath, I would say, is the um, is the access point to what you said earlier about deeper wisdom. Um, I would add, you know, emotional authenticity and and true um, and let's see what truth, right? Because when we're thinking about something, right? Let's say we stop breathing. So let's say that let's say that that jealousy encounter happens, right? I stop breathing. And I'm thinking about it, thinking, thinking, thinking. Well, the story going on in my head, we've pretty much proven now, uh, is linked to uh, that any trauma or rejection or abandonment that I've had as a child. And the residue of that is looping in my head, you know, not trusting women or feeling fearful of rejection. All that stuff is looping in my head. I've got no access to deeper wisdom. I'm kind of a prisoner of this loop in my head. Once I start to breathe, I then now have access to all of the wisdom from my heart down to my balls. And, and I can actually feel like, oh, it's not, it's not that I'm – this story, which is probably not true, right? Whatever I'm making up, more often than not, it's not true. Um, now I can actually get into feelings which are true, right? So the story – you know, so I guess that's a that's a distinction that I just sort of I, I just reminded myself about, which is the story is almost never true, and without breath, the story takes takes over, and the emotions are always true. I'm feeling jealous. I'm afraid. I'm scared. I'm sad. Um, I'm angry. Like those are truths, mm. and those truths are pretty much immutable. Um, no one can tell me I'm not feeling jealous or I'm not feeling afraid. But the story can be interpreted 500 different ways. And so there's also a distinction in there, which is that the story may may have created the feeling and the story might not be true, but that doesn't mean that you're now not experiencing that feeling in a very true way. Yeah? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Now, the story can definitely create the feeling. Um, And I think what's, you know, I mean, you hear about, you know, I guess a, a big piece of what I work with is masculine spiritual practice. And so you know, throughout time, you know, masculine spiritual practice has been about stepping back from the mind and, um, and feeling what's true or witnessing what's true. And so a story that is unchecked, um, can create all kinds of feelings. And it's not until we, you know, sort of drop the energy down from our head into our hearts, into our guts that we can check it. And, um, and then and then, of course, there's ways to say, this is why I love I'm making up, right? I mean, I'm making up that this is how you're thinking and this is what you're feeling. I'm making up that you don't love me anymore. I'm making up that you're more attracted to that guy. I'm making up. And when I do that from a place that's embodied, meaning she can feel my heart, not just my words, but she can feel my heart. She can feel my belly. The front of my body is soft, um, not tensed up. What that does is it actually creates a, a, a deeper intimacy between her and I, theoretically, but more often than not, I've seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it then creates an opening for real connection. So I think, you know, going back to your original question, which is a good one, which is that the, 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 the real benefit of embodiment, um, uh, one of the real benefits is deeper connection, possibility for deeper connection in any moment. Mm. And that connection starts with ourselves. So that's what we're doing we're, when we're embodied. We're connecting with ourself. And from that connection to self, we can connect with our romantic partner. We can connect with our deeper purpose or the world or whoever yeah. we're, we're engaging with. Uh, John, you know, I've been on this kick lately of I feel like I like for the last five or six years, people are doing their TED Talks and I'm watching them and I'm like, I've got no interest in that whatsoever because I didn't feel like I had something that was uh, so relevant and powerful to to come through that I wanted to put in the work for that. And it suddenly just came in like the last two weeks. Uh, I'm not going to give it all away right now, but 
essentially what I see so many people doing is looking for life's answers in their head. And they do that because they're craving this certainty or this control, which they feel is going to keep them safe. And from that place, um, they're, you know, they get trapped in that monkey mind, in all of the fears and the judgments and the not being enough and the, you know, not being able to handle whatever happens to them. And what I realized is, you know, there's this integration of the head and the heart. And it sounds like there's a couple other things, the balls there or the womb for the women or, you know, we can go more into that. But that the answers that so many of us are looking for are in our heart, but it's scary to go into our heart. Yeah. Um, you know, what if we feel the, the emotion that's actually in there yet simultaneously have shame for experiencing that motion? Uh, yeah. What if we realize something about ourselves that isn't necessarily easy to um, to come to terms with because of our current lifestyle or, or our current uh, relationships? So how do we do that? How do we integrate? And I'm kind of sharing a little bit of what I'm so excited about, but how do we integrate that that following the heart, but but using the head also and finding um, the ability to go into our heart. And I believe it all comes down to our breath and the safety and the trust that we've been trying to find in our mind actually comes from our, our breath, which connects us to ourself and gives us the presence and the power to be able to handle whatever is coming up and also connect us to that deeper intuition and uh, that deeper awareness that comes from the breathing. So this is, again, why I'm so excited to be talking to you about this, because I know this is your work, this is what you do, and I, I just see how important it is for everyone out there. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think that's really well put. And uh, what came to me as I was listening to you is that, you know, um, what most of us are looking for, like you said, is some kind of safety. I would add the word nourishment, like we're looking for nourishment in some form or fashion. We're constantly strategizing how to, you know, get nourished in some way. And so um, breath, you know, to, to take that point a little farther is, you know, if it's, you know, good breath practice is incredibly nourishing and it literally feeds us. So um, when we when we breathe... I mean, I said this earlier, and I think it's really, I think it's really important for people to get is that as if you breathe, just three breaths, you go from what is your instinctual primal brain into, I guess, what you would call primal wisdom. And so, breath is the key. Um, Alison Armstrong talks about this. She's a relational teacher, and she she talks about instinct versus um, versus you know spiritual practice right so our instinct is all comes when we feel like we're threatened and so that's when we experience fight or flight you know that's where a lot of us are living in our head and it sends we, we experience fight or flight in our head something triggers us we have a shot of chemicals down into the body and then we tend to act from that place of fight or flight um, breath actually neutralizes those chemicals introduces serotonin into the system and causes you know, the firing of mirror neurons for the people that are with us. So not only are we calming ourselves down <laughs> by breathing and feeling and getting into this space, but also we're calming the people down around us. And I think the question you're asking is, and, and this is something I think is really crucial when people start to practice embodiment work, you're right. They get in touch with their heart and they get in touch with the pain and the shame and the grief that they've had their whole lives. That's just part of being human. And what happens is the judgment that it's not so much that we have shame or jealousy or it's that we it's that we then judge or make wrong the experiences that we're having. Mm. And so one of my one of my favorite concepts comes from, you know, comes from Vajrayana Buddhism. And it's this idea of practicing unconditional friendliness to whatever's happening. So, you know, if the first set of practices brings us into our body and they're kind of yogic, meaning there's breath and there's some movement and we get into our bodies, then the second set of practices is getting in relationship with the emotions that we now feel as an embodied person. And I think that's what you were referring to is like, is having a framework for that. And my favorite one is this idea of being unconditionally friendly to whatever is, mm. um, whatever's happening. 
Mm, amazing. So I'm curious where else there's uh, wisdom um, within us, meaning there's the dialogue that happens in the head uh, from that level of consciousness. There's the heart. You mentioned, you know, lower down, whether for men it's the balls or women, it's the womb. Um, what am I missing here? I'm, I'm, you know, the, the gut. Uh, maybe, maybe you could share a little bit about what else is there and how we can be open to hearing it and, um, and just using it uh, as an extra guiding source in our life. That's a, that's a great question. So um, my first suggestion and my practice always is to slow down because there's an awareness level that happens when we're um, moving slower, when we're talking slower, when we're breathing slower, um, when we're just moving slower through the world. My experience of it, your, list your listeners may may feel differently, but my experience of it is I start to feel a wisdom that's not necessarily mine, but it's from something greater than myself, right? It's from the universe. It's from life. It's from the environment. Like there's a, there's a rhythm that I drop into as I get more, as I slow down and get more embodied. It could just be nature. There's a wisdom of nature. So it's not only stuff that's happening in our bodies, but we tune our bodies to feel the environment and the world on a much different, you know, and the divine, whatever you want to call the divine or call sacred, um, from a much deeper space because our bodies now are open to receive that wisdom. So I think there's two points. One is that as, as we do open our bodies, you know, through yoga or whatever physical practice, Qigong, martial arts, whatever practice, breath, I like Kundalini yoga a lot. So that's my modality, but, um, but as we open our bodies and we, we breathe into our bodies and we open the, literally the physical body, we become more able to receive the wisdom of the universe. Right? I'll go ahead and say it, the wisdom of whatever you want to call God. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and that, to me, is where, where the real beauty comes. So when we slow down, or even better yet, we get still, um, I think that we've got like immense wisdom to tap into. It just requires us to slow down and open our bodies and relax, relax our bodies. I love the irony of the ambulance in the background telling us to slow down. <laughs> yeah. So good, God. Thank you for that one. <laughs> right, right, right. I, one of my favorite practices, man, that I, I love um, and I, I think it's just great for, I usually give this to men. I, I, I don't know, women might benefit from it too, but is literally sitting still with nothing to do and just waiting for just letting everything settle and just allowing ourselves to receive, right? And so much of our lives are spent in output, right? We're creating stuff, we're writing stuff, we're selling stuff, we're giving stuff, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're giving, we're, we're constantly in this output mode. And so receiving, um, as a practice in and of itself where I, man, I just sit, I sit on my couch kind of where I'm sitting now and I just, you know, put my arms up and just relax and allow for a half an hour or 45 minutes or an hour. I just allow myself to receive. There's no, I'm not meditating necessarily. I'm not, I'm just allowing wisdom to come and energy to come and relaxation to come and just allowing my body to receive whatever wisdom you know, life wants to give me. And are and, you bringing yourself back to your breath in that practice or are you just sitting there and wherever you end up an hour later, there you are? Yeah, kind of. I mean, my breath practice is kind of automatic now, but you know, I, what I do is I probably, if I was going to say I'm doing anything specifically, I probably just slow my breath down and just try to feel, uh, you know, I, I've been saying to people for a while that, you know, stop trying to fix your life or stop trying to strategize about your life and start feeling it. Mm. And if I was going to encapsulate, you know, my philosophy or the philosophy that I believe in most, it's, it's that like, you know, strategy, strategy has been the forefront of our work in modern society. And I feel there's a shift happening. And I think this is what you're working on and helping to create and feeling yourself is a shift happening that there's a 
that f- moving from feeling could be more powerful than moving from strategy. Yeah. Yeah. So the way I love the way you put it, which is instead of going, instead of trying to fix, right, to, to go to feel, um, the way that I've internalized that in my own life is instead of self-improvement, it's really self-acceptance and connecting fully and wholly to myself. So many of us are so inspired to get over there that we never connect with here to be in ourselves and have the power within us that we can actually mobilize and move over there. And we might realize once we deeply connect with ourselves, I don't even want to go over there. Where did that come from? Or I'm still there. I yeah. go over there. I get I get the thing that I said I wanted for ten years. I'm over there, and I'm like, "What the fuck? Like, yeah. how come I? How come this didn't fix it?" Totally. Well, and, yeah. And and there's another distinction that I think is important to make for everyone listening. When we talk about slowing down, it, it's not necessarily you know slowing down. Uh, in the way that you do when you eat pasta or like a mm. bunch of food and you and you zonk out on the couch, right? This is slowing down to get clear and to nourish yourself with your breathing, with your practices, to connect more deeply with yourself instead of anesthetize yourself mm. from whatever feelings are there so that you don't have to connect with yourself. Yeah, that's that's great. It's not numbing. A huge difference between numbing from a huge plate of pasta or, you know, a Netflix binge and slowing down, meaning to slow down with alertness and awareness. And, you know, ultimately when we're talking about these practices, we're talking about awareness practices, awareness of how I feel, awareness of what's happening in the people in the space around me, just awareness. Mm. And I think as leaders, you know, um, you know, we're, we're, um, I'll use the word responsible, like we're responsible for cultivating, you know, a deep awareness practice so that we can feel what's going on rather than be thinking about what's going on. Yeah. And uh, it becomes a very different, I think, way of being. Yeah. So how are you doing on time? Speaking of being responsible. Yeah, I'm good, man. I'm good. Okay. I'm done for a few hours after this. So. Okay, beautiful. Um, for those of us who want to trust ourselves more, what advice or practices would you suggest? Hmm. Okay. Um, I'm glad you asked that question. And so a good, uh, one of the great benefits of slowing down um, and just slowing our breath and slowing ourselves down, the sitting practice that I mentioned is one of my favorites. But I think just in general, making a, a just whatever your listener is doing right now, if they just slowed their breath down, they can start to make the distinction between impulse that comes from the mind and impulse that comes from a deeper place. Now, that could be the heart. It could be the gut. It could be the divine or could be the you know nature or whatever. But we'll start to, as we become more aware and as we slow our breath down and choose breath practices, and, you know, I'm happy to send you one or two that I like if, if, if your listeners want them. But if you slow down breath practices and you just start to become aware, we get clear now, wow, that's my mind. That's the monkey mind, like uh, almost spastically, <laughs> you know, pressing me to do something versus a deeper impulse, which which I think is really a purpose-driven impulse, or um, you know m- maybe intuition, right? So, I think the first step in in learning to trust yourself more is to really start to differentiate what's your monkey mind telling you to do, right? That feels fast and maybe fear-based or a little spastic, and what's that deeper impulse? And if there's deeper impulses starting to come through the body, then I'd say 99% of the time they're much more trustable. Mm, I love that. When someone comes to me and they're looking to make a choice in their life and they don't know what to choose, I tell them, go do a good workout. And right Mm. at the end, just ask yourself the same question you asked me. Mm. And it's yeah. a really simple way to tap into that that deeper wisdom. I've made some pretty significant choices in my life being out on a run or even in the shower 
where yeah. my my physiology um, changed, and as a result, my psychology changed, and I was able to to get a, a more clear message. Yeah, of course, man. I mean, exercise is huge. You know, the one piece that I think we haven't touched on, which is which I think is so important for not you know not I'm older than you, but not just your generation, but mine too, which is stamina. Right, like there's a certain amount of stamina needed in awareness, right? To be aware or to practice being aware and in the world. And so, you know, the physiology and physical practice is such a huge piece, I think. Um, and you know, this is not rocket science. You know, people can, you know, how how strong and open and flexible and um, healthy our bodies are is going to certainly, you know, reflect on the quality of our thinking. And the quality of our decision making, and so that's why I'm, you know, I'm such a huge fan of some kind of physical practice. I don't really care what it is. It could be running, it could be qigong, it could be martial arts, it could be yoga, it could be whatever. But mm-hmm. as long as it it, 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 it's going to, there's a saying in qigong that the quality of your consciousness is dictated by the amount of chi that's running through your body, and so. The more chi, life force, energy we have, prana, I guess if you're a yogi, um, you have running through your body, the, the clearer and cleaner the, um, the texture of your consciousness, which feels like exactly what you were talking about when you say go work out and then ask the question again because yeah. <laughs> you'll be more conscious. You're just going to be more conscious. Yeah. And I think speaking from my own experience is that sometimes when we actually feel our chi or our power or our life force or i'm sure there's distinctions between those things but that those that deeper um energy that we have we don't know what to do with it and so we look for ways to dismiss it or get rid of it because it can almost be so strong and powerful that it scares us like driving a ferrari we're like holy shit um so that might come through numbing out or maybe masturbation and uh and ejaculating um and yeah i think it's just cool to the practices that you do help to say okay well i have this power and instead of giving it away or dismissing it because it's too strong and i don't have the tools to handle it i'm going to build myself out meaning i'm going to develop the tools to be able to stand in my power instead of dismiss it because it's so uncomfortable yeah and it's and y- your point is really beautifully put. And the one one word I like to use is nervous system, mm. right? That we're training our nervous system to be able to handle this. You know, as we open our bodies, the downside is we feel. It's the upside and the downside. Like so, we feel the pain in the world, and we'll feel the um, the pain in the people around us, and we'll feel more. We'll feel the joy too. Um, but we feel and training our nervous system again through breath practice and through, you know, certain physical practices to be able to handle our own emotional bodies and our the own energetics, the, not just our emotional bodies, but the the this life force that's running through us um, is is a super powerful practice. And martial artists have known this for, and sexual yogis have known this too. I mean, you know, part of a good sexual practice is being able to not only you know, run my own energy and like hold my own energy, but now add somebody else to the mix hmm. and I'm running and, and working their energy. So, or even the real masters can work a room, right? They're, they're not just feeling their own energy, but they're moving the energy in the room with their breath and their awareness and their capacity. So yeah, training our nervous systems is, is a crucial piece of this, uh, of this work. And I think of ultimate ultimately a satisfying life. Ah, so good. So the last thing that I want to make sure we get to is death. And I was talking to uh, someone who I'm quite close with who's 23 years old. And I asked him, what's your relationship to death? And it's like he he didn't he wasn't even able to hear me. He thought I said something else because he was just, it was so foreign for someone to ask him that question. Um, why is that a conversation that's worth having? And what would you for someone who's not used to thinking about death or talking about death? You know, why can that be helpful for us? Mm. Yeah. Um, so there's. Um, 
you know, in shamanic practice, I mean, around the world, whether it's South America or Siberia, right, there, there tends to be a thread in shamanic work. And that thread is that, that, that the shamans, right, which I would claim we all have shaman in us, right? Yeah, and can you it, can you just define shaman for those of us shaman who is a been to is, Peru? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> is a is the is you know let's call him the um, the spiritual the spiritual leader of a community, right? The spiritual sometimes he's also a medicine man or she's also you know a healer. Um, so the shamans would be you know the part of us that's the sort of spiritual leader of of a community. So it could be a rabbi. A rabbi is basically a shaman. Um, or, or a priest, uh, you know, these are shamans in, in, in their communities, the spiritual leaders of their communities. But, but shamans throughout, you know, it doesn't matter what community it is, they've, they've had this relationship. Well, let me clarify that. Christianity, you know, Judeo-Christian thinking has a different philosophy on this. So I'll, I'll let me just stick with indigenous peoples. Um, there's a relationship to death that, that is making death an ally and so you know when i think about this concept of making death an ally there's two ways that i like to look at it and the first is what do i have to do before i die like if i had a year to live what would i want to do so that i could die complete you know how would i want to love what would i want to create you know how would i want to be in the world what would i want to experience and by acknowledging death that death is coming <laughs> that death is coming yeah uh, it doesn't matter whether you're 23 or 46 death is coming and acknowledging that it's coming it sharpens especially for men this is a this is a big part of masculine practice is asking the question okay what do i need to do before i die for me to feel that i've lived my life as deeply and fully as i could that's the that's the that's the piece i think that almost everybody kind of gets can get theoretically like, yeah, I'm dying. If I was going to die at 25 and I'm 23, what would I want to do in the next two years? Mm-hmm. That tends to sharpen us. I can go, okay, let me, let me get to it. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the other piece, which is more subtle and a little more meditative, but I think much richer, in my opinion, is to feel death as an ever-present energy. So, for example, where you're sitting, you know, I'm imagining you're in New York somewhere. I'm in Santa Monica. You know, where, for, you know, within a mile of us, there are trees dying. There are people probably dying. There are animals dying. Um, death is happening uh, in conjunction with new life and life. It's happening right now. Can I feel that energetic on the planet and in the cosmos as a as a nourishing force so to speak um and you know can i feel everybody you know there's death happening now and i'm not talking grim reaper like death i'm talking about moving from you know from being into non-being you know this this constant flow the the analogy i like to use is if you walk into the redwood forest for example you see not only these huge, you know, thousand foot trees, beautiful, brimming with life, but you see all of the dead trees that have fallen and then all the new trees that are coming out of them. And there's this symbiosis between the constant flow of life and death, life, death, life, death, life, death. That's literally energetic. And I don't know about you, man, but for me, just feeling, feeling it is so nourishing because it reminds me that everything is always dying. Every, you know, every relationship I'm in is going to die at some point. Every business I build is going to cease to exist. Every, every project I do is going to have a death to it. And versus this sort of all the energy we put to avoid death happening. Um, I, I'm going off the end a little, going off the deep end a little bit here. I hope it resonates, but I'm, I'm trying to sort of talk about the relationship to the energy of death happening all the time, which if we accept it, is actually quite relaxing. Yeah, well, I love it. And I brought you here to take us off the deep end. So thank you for that. (laughs) So the word that you use there was nourishing. And speaking from my own experience and my projection of other people's experiences, when I feel into, so there's all this death happening. I can hear the sirens again, right? Somebody is in trouble, uh, perhaps, or whether that 
is or isn't the case, there's still this death occurring. Um, how do you get nourishing? So to me, I might get the feeling of uh, alivening in a way. Um, mm-hmm. It does sharpen me up. It does make me in a way grateful. Um, but there's the other side of that, which is almost a, a sadness or a, or a um, yeah something something on the on the more uncomfortable side. Yeah. yeah. Can, can you talk a little bit to that? Yeah, well, I, I personally think that sadness is nourishing, um, and I feel that. Um, so yeah, there's like, um, to me, and again, this is you know this is you know not only my personal philosophy, but just kind of a it's a it's a little more of an advanced concept, but this idea that there is no life without death, and to I guess the best way I could describe it is there's a sense of relaxation that happens in the acceptance of the to go all Lion King on you, the circle of life, mm. right? That, that, um, you didn't know I'd be using Lion King, <laughs> references here. but, but, um, that there is, a, as we accept that, that death is just as much a beautiful and inevitable and, um, a, a part of the, of the, you know, of the birth and death of the cosmos of you and I, I personally, find that nourishing i find that relaxing because i'm in acceptance that that everything i think is important everything that i'm working so hard to push through in the end is meaningless because it's all we're all you know passing back into dust and so to me that does sharpen me and it relaxes me and it also leaves me feeling that i don't need anything like i don't need to to do anything or be anything i just if I feel that, that there's so much passing in this life, in this wheel of life, that, that I, you know, this, um, uh, there's, let me see if I can go at it this way. There's, let's call it a mystic law, right? Whether we call it God or we call it the force or we call it yeah. love, right? There's a mystic law. And that mystic law has a latent form meaning it's, it's, it's in the world and it has a non-latent form. And both of those forms are equally important, just like hibernation is important for a bear's life or, or fertilizing a soil is deeply important. So there's an honoring. I guess if I was going to put it one way, I would say that, it, that I'm, I, I, would, I would ask for people to consider honoring death as a natural part of the cycle of life not just of human beings or of life but of all phenomena mm. everything dies mm. everything dies and that the problems that we run into as human beings is when we don't accept that or when we fight that yeah. and there's something about accepting that it's just coming and i'm gonna actually feel it so, um is relaxing yeah yeah that's cool and and that's within ourselves also Right, the death of my current identity, my current way of showing up, my current position in the world, and totally, and totally. and and then also, you know, where we went was like, hey, so if everything is ultimately going to end in death, the things that are most important to me, the people that I love most, it's all going to die. The question that could be asked would be, well, then why does anything matter? Why is life worth living? And I think there's the distinction in there, which is knowing that, yeah, this is how life works. And are you willing to show up and play full out and go all in and open your heart and open yourself as much as possible instead of go to despair or indifference about not really living because you're going to be dying? Yeah. And, and I think what you're, what you're alluding to is this, is this sort of duality of life good, death bad. Mm. And what I'm trying to say is death good, life good. Uh. Right. It's all good. It's all, it's all part of, it's all the mystic law. It's all, it's all God for lack of a better term. And dude, that takes some fucking spiritual strength because you think about war, you think about pain and violence and all that. And so if we're saying death good, life good, I mean, Where's the line with some of the things that we would say aren't good and immoral, like child abuse or, or any of those things? Like, where, Well, I don't call those death. I mean, they might result in death, 
but I'm making this distinction between violence or murder and the energetic of death. Got it. Yeah, but yeah, because I consider I consider those things bastardizations of life. Mm-hmm. Um, but death, in and of itself, if we just take it as a as a neutral concept, um, now we could go we could go down the fucking rabbit hole with this one. <laughs> but but, uh, but I'm just talking as a meditative. You know, I'm really speaking to it as an again as an ally because we don't know. Like you, you know, I could walk outside and get shot, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, part of my personal story is that that happened to my stepfather when I was 10. He walked outside and was randomly shot. And so maybe I have this kind of, I've had this question about death and the impermanence of life since I was a boy. And it leads me to think about this stuff and to get into a relationship with death. You know, my daughter, I don't know if you know my daughter's story, but she's she's also terminal, she's terminally ill. She has cystic fibrosis. And so she's 18, but, you know, chances are, you know, we've had to, we've had to face her possible death a few times. Um, and so I've been forced, I guess, more than most people to, to get right with death and to feel that it's just consciousness unfolding, Hmm. you know, that there's nothing wrong, that there's just, it's just consciousness unfolding. And just like a leaf falls from a tree and goes into the earth and then, you know, becomes the nourishment for another tree. Hmm. I, I tend to look at death that way. John, thank you for taking us into the deep end. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah. Um, so I know you're, you do workshops. You've got all kinds of cool shit happening. How can people more deeply engage with your work and maybe on a, on a hey, I'm kind of more curious about John, that'd be cool to learn more, and also the, like, holy fuck, I've been waiting for this. You know, where do I go from here to really dive into this work with John? How can, how can people do that? Um, yeah, they can just look me up online, uh, johnwineland.com. It's wine like you drink, land like you live on, um, dot com. So I have a website and it's got all the ways to, it's got some of the programs that I have going on, men's programs, couples programs. Um, and they can email me and I'm happy to, you know, have strange conversations with them as well. Uh, yeah, man. but thank you. I really, I really enjoyed our talk, Jacob. And I, I, you know, I'm a nerd for this stuff, man. I love, I love talking about spiritual practice and, and, you know, men's work and my, um, my personal goal, I'll put it out there if you don't mind is to, is to create a thousand men's groups around the world. And so men's groups are really the thing that I find very nourishing for men's practice and men's work. And so if there's anybody that in your world that's interested in that, they can contact me and I'll, tell them how you know how I, i'm trying to support that and make that happen mm. cool well i'm i'm actually interested so why not ask right now live so that everyone else can hear also what what does that entail um well you know it's very it varies i mean you could just we could have a conversation you could say i want to start a men's group how do i do that or what do you suggest and we could totally have that conversation and i'd give you all the experience i have and the criteria that i use um or you could come to a workshop and, and learn from me and, and a couple of the guys who, who have been teaching men's work and doing a lot of men's work stuff as to the specific practices and containers and modalities that we use and then set up a men's group like that. Um, or I do long training, six-month and nine-month trainings for men who want to you know, more deeply lead men's work, mm-hmm. maybe start their own men's group. Um, so this kind of like you could get, or it could go anywhere from a conversation about it, which I'm happy to support to, um, to a, uh, you know, full blown training and, uh, and I'm happy to support in, in any way possible, any men who want to start a men's group and, and share all the experience I have doing so because, you know, Rich, you know, Rich Litvin, him and I've been in a men's group for seven years and both of us, you know, consistently say that virtually everything good in our world has come you know, as a result of the support we got from, you know, having good men around us and, and, and deep men, you know, having these kinds of conversations, quite frankly. Yeah. So, yeah. Right on, dude. Well, again, yeah. thank you so much. And uh, guys, check out John's work. Um, John, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, John. Soul Sibling, thank you so much for rocking with us. I appreciate you and I appreciate that you're using your time and your energy toward making yourself a better person and the world a better place. So 
if you'd like to keep in touch, I'd love it if you subscribe to the podcast. And I'm excited to deepen our relationship, to get to know each other better over time, and to see how I can help you solve meaningful challenges and create your most fulfilled life. We've got a great community over here, and we run retreats all over the world. We've got people who connect with each other and support each other in living the most fulfilled life. And what I'd suggest for your next step is to grab a copy of The 12 Things Happy People Do Differently. It's a scientific-based approach to happiness, and there's a lot of great wisdom out there, but this in particular is researched back from some of the world's leading positive psychologists in the world, and it's super grounded, super practical, how you could do these 12 things that happy people do differently and rock it. The article's been shared over 100,000 times on Facebook, and there's some magic in there. So in order to grab a copy of that, you can go to thankyoujacob.com. Sounds simple, and it is. Thankyoujacob.com, and uh, grab that immediately, and I will keep in touch through personal emails that I send out a couple times a month and all that goodness. So for now, sending you lots of love. Keep it real. Follow your heart, but bring your head. Peace.